Revelation chapter 8. It's page 1032 in your pew Bible. Please stand in honor of God's word as we read it. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire and the altar, uh, from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there was followed hail and fire mixed with blood and there, was, there were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. A second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So reads the word of God. Please be seated. As I said in different words a moment ago, it can be hard for us to feel motivated to continue on in our study of Revelation this morning. You might feel less motivated yet having read the text just now because it is one that could be titled the beginning of God's final wrath poured out on the earth. That would be a good title for Revelation 8. But the circumstances of this week might, might actually put us precisely in the place to appreciate much of what we see here. 
and in a way that's both comforting and encouraging, odd as that may sound given the events of the week and the text we just read. But let's see how. Let's see how this works. We'll walk through this chapter in three parts, and they're listed for you in your bulletins. I won't make a great deal out of them as we transition from one to the next, but you can see the flow of the text there. We first of all have the seventh seal, and from that, the first four of seven trumpets, and then the announcement of three woes. Again, a very insightful outline in your bulletin, but one that does capture the flow of thought here. Let's walk through this chapter and see if we can find encouragement. Verse 1, when the, lamb opened, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That's a strange development, wouldn't you say? Remember the opening of the sixth seal back in chapter 6. It brought us to the very threshold of the great tribulation. We read there in verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then we had the interlude of chapter 7 that we looked at last week, seeing the worshiping multitude in heaven and the sealing of the saints for their protection through the hard days that were to come. Now the slitting of the seventh seal. One of the things we have to recognize about Revelation is that it is not necessarily sequential. That's one thing. So we're not necessarily moving in order, in the order of the text through the events of history. We can see illustrations of that. I'm not going to do that now. We'll see those as they come up. But it's also possible that in addition to not being sequential, there is some sections that are just retold again and again. And you can see that here. The sixth trumpet, or the sixth seal, brings us up to the threshold of the revelation. The seventh is slit. And what we just read is it entailed seven trumpets. And so seven trumpets are covering some part of, some overlap along with these six seals, such that we're left in a place where we can't string together a chronology of how these actually work because they seem to overlap and even include one another at times as they do this morning. Also, there is no real indication other than an interlude on a different subject that the seventh seal was slit any longer after the sixth seal than the sixth was slit after the fifth. So we see an interlude, but that doesn't necessarily mean there was a time gap there. It's quite possible that the sixth seal was slit. All of this cataclysmic expression happens. And the seventh is slit right immediately afterwards. And silence. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. You talk about an image that people want to try to identify, want to try to explain. It's this one. It's an amazing description given what's happened up until now. There's much speculation about this dramatic half hour. Some think it's, it's preparation 
for hearing the prayers of the saints. Time is given for heaven to listen to the prayers of the saints that are following. Some think it's for anticipation, that it's just fueling expectation, silence, all right, now what's going to come? It would be like being in a scary movie and all of a sudden there is silence and no motion and every second that accumulates, you're waiting for, all right, what's going to jump out of the darkness? Perhaps, perhaps. I actually think we should see this as some combination of all of that together. See it as the, the quintessential, really, moment of silence. A moment of silence honoring the memory of the earth that once was good. I think this one encapsulates all the rest. I think it captures where we are at this stage of the book. We're not told that this is a moment of silence, but we're reading through the text and hearing increasingly. Remember we talked last week about 20 minutes into an evening of Shakespeare, your ear starts tuning in and you actually catch the jokes at that point? Similarly, this far into this book, I think something like that is going on. Verse 2, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. These are new. We don't read about the seven angels that stand before God anywhere else in Scripture. There's one reference in an extra-biblical source that's interesting, but this is a new group. But these seven angels are given seven trumpets, we're told here in verse 2. So this is the second round now of seven judgments. And it has unique parallels to the first. And they appear to be, these seven trumpets, the content of the seventh seal. So remember, the sixth seal walked us up to the threshold of the great tribulation, we would say, whether chronologically or just ideologically, it prepares us for that outpouring of the wrath of God. And now the seventh seal is slit, and here it comes. The content of the seventh seal seems to be the seven trumpets such that it includes them all, taking us right through that great tribulation period with the descriptions that are being given here. Verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. It's a powerful description. This is the second time we've seen this pairing of heavenly incense with the prayers of the saints. We also saw it back in chapter 5 in the worship sequence as the worship of the Lamb was just exploding, erupting. Now we see it paired again here. Verse 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. This gives us a sense of real ceremonial significance. Something profound is going on here. The golden altar, the golden censer, the prayers of the saints that were collected in a golden bowl in the hands of the 24 elders back in chapter 5 are now in the presence of God being presented by an angel on the golden altar before him with much incense. 
This is a ceremonial picture. The, the prayers of the saints are no small matter here. So a sense of ceremonial significance and the high honor with which the prayers of the saints are received in the presence of God. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. We've seen that trifold description before as well. We'll come back to this description. But it, before we do, let's move through the rest of the text to appreciate what happens now as the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. What happened next? We move into verses 6 through 12. This morning we see only the first four trumpets here. But we're also introduced to the final three in verse 13. Let me read a summary of what one commentator wrote about this section because I don't think I could put it in better words. He said, the first four trumpets are reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues at the Exodus. You'll hear that. Many write on this subject, but this summarizes it and condenses it in a way for us that's helpful. The first four trumpets are reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues at the Exodus. The fifth and sixth are less clearly so, but then in chapter 15, verse 3, the coming of Christ reflects back to the Exodus yet again. Mentioning there, the redeemed sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. So it is possible, he writes, and this is George Beasley Murray, it's possible, therefore, that the final redemption, the second Exodus, is heralded by similar plagues as at the first. So God is acting yet again as he's about to deliver his people ultimately out of their bondage and into the land of promise. And so we're seeing a passage that parallels that experience. And again, much of the description here will draw on that in order to be understood. These four trumpets then that we see here in chapter 8 target the earth and the last three target the inhabitants of the earth, particularly those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads, chapter 9, verse 4. So that's just a bit of an introduction to these four trumpets. Let's walk through these verses now. Verse 7, the first trumpet. With the first trumpet, hail and fire mixed with blood, we're told, were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. Hail and fire here may actually be literal. Hail and fire falling from heaven. And fire falling from heaven in Scripture is usually talking about lightning strikes, but lightning strikes that do some damage. Lightning strikes as though they are expressing the wrath of God. So they may be literal, they may also be figurative, 
just illustrative of divine judgment, they may actually be both, and I think we're going to find most often that that's the case, that the very expressions that happen, even if they literally happen, also have a spiritual significance to them as they are taking place. That's how apocalyptic tends to work, and it's surely how spirit-inspired apocalyptic is working. There's never just one layer of meaning. You can read the Gospel of John and never get one layer of meaning. It's constantly layered in what John is saying, just as he's telling the story of Christ. So surely uh, that is what he is doing here as well, and we can see it again and again throughout this book. Fire and blood rain from heaven. Um, it's part of end times judgment in an extra biblical source again and also at different places throughout the scriptures. But I'm not sure we would get great help from there without spending a lot of time on those images. Let's just identify two things that are clear here that we need to note as we're moving through the trumpets. First, the earth itself is the target of this judgment and of the next three, this first trumpet and indeed the first four. That's the thing we need to note. And second, a third of the earth is affected each time one of these trumpets is blown. That means that the judgment that is being expressed or being introduced, heralded by this trumpet, is partial at this point not a complete outpouring of the final judgment of God. This isn't yet the end. And the fact that it's just a third of each is part of what we're supposed to hear in these trumpets. That's why it's repeated so many times. So this means the judgment is partial at this point, not complete. And the intent of this judgment, we'll see as we get through the sixth trumpet over in chapter 9, the intent is to press the unrighteous toward repentance. You can see that in the last two verses, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. But you also see that just doesn't happen. What's going on throughout this book as the judgments are being poured out is that they have that twofold effect we saw from the beginning. They are pressing the righteous into trust in Christ and enduring hope for the day of his return. And they are just making the unrighteous angrier and angrier as they gnash their teeth against heaven and the misfortune that they're experiencing. We see here something of the condition of the human heart. We tend to think with just enough hardship we would turn to Christ as Savior, but that's not how it works. When our heart is bent against Him, the suffering that we experience drives us farther and farther away. You probably know people for whom that happens. When we embrace Christ by faith, the suffering we endure presses us closer and closer to the heart of the Savior. And I know you know people who exhibit that quality. The second angel, verse 8, blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Hmm. It's hard to know exactly what this means. Some suggest it's metaphorically describing the judgment of a wicked kingdom because 
Oftentimes through the Old Testament, kingdoms are described as mountains. For instance, Jeremiah 51 is a good background for this text, perhaps. The text says there, I will repay Babylon before your very eyes for all the evil they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down the crags and make you a burnt mountain. You hear the imagery. Surely that's a picture of the judgment of Babylon getting thrown down as though they were a mighty burning mountain. But if that's the meaning of verse 8, it's hard to make a connection with verse 9 when we see the impact of that mountain going into the sea. It's hard to connect with verse 9 and to understand it. John couldn't really identify what was thrown into the sea. You can see it in his description here, the way one commentator said it or summarized it. He said, it was what I can only call a great mountain, what looked like a great mountain. He's, again, searching for words to try to describe what he's seeing and what it looked like was something like a great mountain burning and falling into the sea. But whatever it was, it accomplished God's judgment on a third of the sea. We can too frequently get caught up in the imagery and miss the impact of what the image is doing and therefore miss the point of the passage. That we don't want to do this morning. Whatever this burning mountain is that's cast into the sea, what resulted was judgment on a third of the sea in contrast to a third of the land back in verse 7. And a third of the sea became blood, we're told here, recalling another Egyptian plague where water was miraculously turned to blood. We hear this and we think, well, where did the blood come from? There must have been people on the mountain and then you know, a vast number of people because if it's going to turn a third of the sea into blood. You see how we get off on speculative directions that take us right away from the text itself. What do we learn from the first two trumpets? There was judgment on a third of the earth. Now there's a judgment on a third of the sea. That's what we're being told. And we're being told that in apocalyptic imagery. It's, it's judgment that's falling from heaven. This isn't just your average daily natural disaster or something. This is God's direct intervention bringing judgment on these spheres. Verse 9, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, I think that's emphasizing partial more than if we counted all life in the sea, is it precisely one-third of them? If not, the word isn't true, no. It's an image describing partial judgment. So now judgment has fallen on land, and judgment has fallen on sea as the third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. So now it's the waters on land that are being affected. Clearly we know that a great star can't fall to earth from heaven. What we know about stars, well before the star ever got to the earth, the earth would be incinerated by that approaching ball of burning gas. 
But John is trying to describe something here, and that's not where our quarrel is with the text. How could a star fall to earth? John saw something like the burning mountain thrown into the sea under the first trumpet. Something is hurled at the earth from the heavens. George Ladd says, a great blazing meteor. And if we need a description, that's a good one. It's not at all hard for us to see how John might see a meteor striking the earth and causing this issue and describe it as a great burning star. But the fact remains that these are apocalyptic descriptions. They're being seen in a vision. And as we've said again and again, these visions are more like an impressionistic painting than they are like a photograph or a video. We want to treat them that way, but that's just not how they work. Heavens falling to earth in any form is an image of divine judgment. We could go to numerous passages and see that. It's an image of the breakdown of the cosmos. And here the target is primarily in view. The target is primarily in view, not the action itself. The action's not unimportant. It's the Word of God. But what is happening here? Judgment is being poured out on the earth. Here it's the earth, it's the sea, and now the waters on the land that have been struck. And this one affected the people, we're told, right there in verse 11. Wormwood was the name of the star. Wormwood is an herb. It's a very bitter substance. Wormwood appears in the Old Testament. What was known at the time, wormwood wasn't poisonous. Now it's known that in some ways it can be. But again, we're not here to test the molecular structure of wormwood. Here it's used by God to pollute the water supply, an expression of His direct judgment, and it has an impact. It takes life. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and darkened the heavens by a third. Day and night darkened by a third. Again, we're calling one of the plagues of Egypt, darkness. But this time, not great darkness, not a darkness that could be felt, the way Moses writes in Exodus 10. A third of the darkness. A third. Light, the lights were dimmed. There's no explanation of how the lights were dimmed. But the darkening of the heavens is again an image of divine judgment. Remember Jesus on the cross from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Darkness covered the earth. How? I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? The God who made the cosmos can take care of that part. What we're seeing here is now judgment has fallen on the earth. It's fallen on the sea. It's fallen on the waters that are on the earth. Now it's fallen on the cosmos as a whole. It's falling on the whole thing. And that's being illustrated by the darkening of the light 
It's an image of divine judgment, and this time on the whole cosmos, not just a portion of the earth. The wrath of God is being poured out. That's what we see in the first four trumpets. And who can understand it fully? But my friends, the worst is actually yet to come. And that's what we see as chapter 8 draws to a conclusion in verse 13. The announcement of the three woes. Verse 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Think noonday sun. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Those who dwell on the earth is a repeated expression in Revelation designating the pagan world that's in hostility toward God. So this is woe to the inhabitants of the earth who do not bear the mark of God on their forehead. So the focus is now turning then from the cosmos to its inhabitants and a crying eagle is mercifully sent to announce that. You hear the first four trumpets and you see judgment falling on the earth. And then you hear the announcement, the next three falling on you. And that finishes chapter 8. How it fell on the inhabitants of the earth is for another day. In light of this judgment finally coming, though, the judgment that we heard the saints calling out for in chapter 5, how long before you judge this earth and avenge our blood? Then it comes back in chapter 8, the prayers of the saints. So in light of this judgment finally coming, having heard the saints under the altar in chapter 6, crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Knowing that their prayers are being held by the 24 elders in golden bowls full of incense, that's the part we pick up from chapter 5. Having heard all of that, we're prepared to appreciate all the more what we read here in verses 3 through 5. The verses I said we would come back to in a little bit. A little bit has come. We're prepared to appreciate all the more what we read here that initiates this judgment, that initiates the beginning of the end. How does it happen? Look at verse 3 again. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Some say that this incense is added for the purification of the prayers. But there's no indication at Scripture that blood-bought believers need some sort of purification of their prayers before they call out to God. There is no mediator 
for that purpose. Our mediator is Christ. So that doesn't seem to be it. Others say that this shows that there is heavenly assistance given to our prayers. I like that image. I think that's just what we see here. Verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Which is probably a way of saying that heaven and earth are at one in this matter. It's Leon Morris who wrote this, and I love this statement. Heaven and earth are at one on this matter, such that prayer is not the lonely venture it so often feels. I think that's what we're seeing in these opening verses of chapter 8. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar. So this is what happens after. And here it is, threw it on the earth. So took fire from the altar before God, mixed it with the incense and the prayers of the saints and threw it on the earth. And... According to the passage, it had its effects. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All the familiar indicators of God acting in judgment to fulfill his purpose. We, we looked a few weeks ago at where that description comes back throughout this book. So this is what happens. You get the image? The prayers of the saints collected by the elders being brought before God through the hand of the angel. We mentioned how strange that sounds, talking about the ministry of angels in the book of Revelation. But this angel bringing these prayers and mixing it now with much incense and it rises before God. And then at that point, fire scooped from the altar and hurled to the earth. And all the manifestations of God's judgment transpire. That's where we are. And my friends, I would say this, this is our comfort today. This is our comfort. This is our encouragement. We're not powerless against the forces of evil in this fallen world, whether they flow from the intentional efforts of the world itself or from Satan or whether they're just seemingly the random effects of life in this sin-shattered cosmos, we are not powerless against them. That's what this text teaches us. We're not powerless against, for instance, the religious persecution that happens in places like Afghanistan and North Korea and Somalia and, and, and all of the rest. We're not powerless against that. We're not powerless against the moral laxity and the, the bizarrely exaggerated expressions of personal freedom that we see in so many of our different cultural battles today. We're not powerless against them. 
We're not powerless even against just the ugly manifestations of of seemingly random evil. Attacks by wild beasts. We heard about that under the fourth seal back in chapter 6. That's part of the judgment of God. We're not powerless against manifestations of seemingly random evil. Attacks of wild beasts, things like pandemics, motorcycle accidents. We're not powerless. Leon Morris continued to write in a brilliant section of comment on this passage. What are the real master powers behind the world? And what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here is the astonishing answer, he wrote. The prayer of the saints and the fire of God. In case you lost me in the middle, let me read it again. What are the real master powers behind the world? And what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here is the astonishing answer. The prayer of the saints and the fire of God. Meaning, God's people calling out and Him answering. That's essentially all we're talking about, even with this compelling language. Morris goes on to add, this means that more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in this world. Before I continue, let that sink in. Let it sink into your mind. The random array, the vast array of what we would call dark and mighty powers let loose in this world. What do you think of there? Everything from religious persecution to famine and hunger. Everything from the last days of an extended battle with an ugly disease all the way to immediate accidental death without warning. All of those are expressions of the mighty powers of darkness let loose in this world. Manifestations of our fallenness. So, Morris writes, this means that more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in this world more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. The cooperation of God's people with an almighty God who blesses and judges rightly and our saying with him, our trust is in you. In all of these matters. This is our comfort today. 
our comfort today, our God is listening. He's listening. He's listening to every single one of our petitions and prayers. And he's promised to answer. If Todd had kept reading for three more verses in 1 John 5, I'm not suggesting he should have. This was for my sermon, not for his. He kept reading the very next three verses. We see that God hears and that he answers. Right here, right now in this life, where faith is the victory that overcomes the world, where that sends God's people in 1 John 5, verses 13 through 15, is to the realization that God is listening and that he answers. Surely it won't always result in our deliverance at the moment. Our prayers cannot make the fallen world unfallen even though we're praying in line with the God who will deliver us from it. Surely it won't always result in our deliverance at the moment. It won't prevent every illness or accident. It will prevent some of them. And it'll neutralize others. But the best news of all today is that in the end, in the end... It will address every single one of them. As we call out to him in prayer, first, he will collect our prayers in golden bowls in his presence. The inner circle around the throne is seeing to that. Not a prayer of the saints is lost. And they're eventually brought before God and placed on a golden altar before the throne. That's stunning. Answer me. Amen. He'll collect our prayers in golden bowls in his presence. Then he'll assist them in some unknown way that's pictured here by the incense of heaven. I don't know how that works, but I appreciate Morris's image, and I think that's probably what's going on. This is somehow the assistance of heaven. This is like the Spirit helping us when we don't know what to pray. Romans 8, 26 and 27. And he'll eventually answer them all. He'll eventually answer them all. (coughs) Excuse me. Bringing justice with regard not only to the intentional expressions of injustice that we've endured but also to the random acts of evil that we've experienced or endured or or even just observed. Our God listens to his people. And he responds. Wherever you are today, whatever form of evil you're facing, Call out to him. 
He's with you in the midst of it. He's aware of all that's happening. And he's listening to your prayers. In everything up to and including the outpouring of final judgment on this earth, our God has purpose to listen to his people and to respond to their prayers. (coughs) Is that encouraging? Is that comforting? Let's call out to him in prayer. And as we pray, those who are assisting with communion and leading in worship, please join us at the front. Oh, Heavenly Father, you can talk to us about things that are so encouraging, and a text like this reminds us of how easy it is for us to get off on sidetracks and miss what stands at the heart of what we're reading here. It's so easy for us to do that. Oh, Father, forgive us. Cleanse our minds and our hearts. Open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear your word as you give it to us. Help us to recognize that even in the judgment of the earth, something greater is going on. We don't glory in the judgment any more than we just glory in you who are the God who judges. But our encouragement doesn't come from the judgment itself. It comes from the fact that you are showing your people what difference it makes when we call out to you in our times of need. When we call out to you from places or seasons of unique suffering in this life. And Lord God, I pray that you would strengthen your people to hear and to respond to the word of God. As you tell us that truth, help us, Lord God, to understand the implications of it. Such that the patterns of our life in the coming week aren't the same as they were last week. Because perhaps we've been reminded, perhaps we've been enlightened for the first time on the significant role that calling out to you in prayer plays in this life and in preparation for the next. Lord, work with us as your people. Shape us in the likeness of Jesus. And I pray that through our remembrance of his death on our behalf, in these next moments, shape his likeness all the more persuasively, all the more convincingly, all the more truly within us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.